Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. The Nicene Creed professes one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. These are known as the four marks of the church. On this episode, Bishop focuses on the first mark, one. Hear more about unity and why it's an essential part of the church. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our good bishop. Thanks again for being here, Bishop. You're welcome, Kyle. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Do you have a, a favorite number? Eight. Eight? What? Why eight? I don't know. Oh. <laughs> you said that very quickly. I know, but I've always liked number eight. I've always liked Yeah. It. Was that like your school number? No, like I don't even like know why I have that as a favorite number. Huh. It goes back to when I was a child, so I, I, don't, I don't know. Okay. But it's my lucky number. Okay. Yeah. So what, what, what's yours? You, you buy lottery tickets with number eight on them? I don't really buy lottery tickets, okay. although, uh, I mean, very rarely, like once every seven years. Uh-huh. <laughs> Not every eight years? No. Well, yeah, I should do it every eight <laughs> years. But, you know, different games or something, I'll choose eight, you know, uh-huh. exactly. Very good. We're talking about two different numbers today, the number four and the number one. Okay. It's funny, kind of those two numbers, I would almost think like it'd be three or seven but we talk about the four marks of the church, and the first one is that it's one. Those are, those are the number four and the number one. Why four marks of the church? Why not three or Well, five? I don't think it, it was just that these are the four essential features of the church and the church's mission, as taught in really the Nicene Creed. And okay. so I don't think they were looking at the number— well, it was actually, by the way, the Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed, because as you know, we just refer to the Nicene Creed. Uh-huh. It actually reached its final form as the after the First Council of Constantinople. So it's the Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed from 381 AD. And in that, we profess our faith in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Uh So they are the four, what we call the four marks of the church or the essential features. And we profess that every Sunday. And we do it by rote. So, you know, what does it mean? Mm -hmm. The catechism gives a great explanation because, of course, the first part of the catechism of the Catholic Church is on the creed. And... So when it gets to that part, it gives an explanation of each of the four marks of the church. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, we thought it'd be a good thing to just kind of cover each one of those four marks as a separate episode. So today, talking about the church being one. So one, holy, Catholic, apostolic is the four. So today we'll talk about the church being one, which seems to be unity, right? Like this is, we are united Exactly. Yes. The church that Christ founded is one. He didn't found two or three or 10 churches. Hmm. He founded one church. So it's good to reflect on this. It's a very important issue, you know, but it's important always to see it in relation to the other three marks of the church. In other words, all four marks of the church really are interrelated and you have to see them together as the foundation of the church's authentic self-understanding. Okay. So when we look at 
really, they this is the church's identity. This is what the church is. So when we begin, the catechism really begins by explaining how the church is one because of her source. Mm-hmm. And that source is God, the one God uh-huh. in three divine persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So the church is one because of her source, the Holy Trinity, a perfect unity of three divine persons. And second, the church is one because of her founder, Jesus Christ. It was Jesus who, or the Son of God, who became flesh, and he restored the unity of all in one people and one body. So Jesus came to reconcile all people, all mankind, through the blood of the cross. So he is our founder. The church is one because of her one founder, Jesus Christ the Lord. And thirdly, and this is all kind of invisible, okay, the, the founder, I mean, the, the source being the most holy trinity, the founder being, being Jesus, although he became visible. And third, the church is one because of her soul. And, of course, the soul of the church is the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who dwells in our souls and unites us into one communion of believers. It's the Holy Spirit who guides the church and brings about this wonderful communion of the faithful, joining us together in Christ. So the Holy Spirit, we could say, is the principle of the church's unity. That's what that's what the Second Vatican Council taught, that the Holy Spirit is the principle of the church's unity. So unity is of the essence of the church. Now, this unity is also something visible. So it's not just like an invisible unity. You know, what are the visible bonds of communion? And the Catechism teaches that there are three visible bonds. Number one, we're united in the profession of one faith, the faith that we receive from the apostles. So this is then related to another mark of the church. It's apostolic, Mm -hmm. okay? But that's part of our unity. We're united by professing the one faith. We're united in our creed, our beliefs. Secondly, we're united by the celebration of the sacraments, our common celebration of divine worship. And that's very visible. I mean, for example, the Eucharist, but also all the other sacraments as well. So, and the one church of Christ has seven sacraments. And thirdly, we're united by our hierarchical communion, the hierarchical structure that's based on the apostolic succession. And, of course, apostolic succession happens through the sacrament of holy orders. So this maintains the unity of the church, of God's family, the church. So these are all really important. We can look at some scripture passages. Like when St. Paul, St. Paul's letter to the Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, he writes, There is one body and one spirit just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, 
one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all. And what's this, this unity of the church is seen and really comes about through the Holy Eucharist. St. Paul said this in his first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 10, verse 17. He said, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Hmm. So this is very important. And, and Jesus himself said in uh, John chapter 10, verse 16, he promised that there would be one flock, one shepherd. So this oneness of the church is an essential quality of the church. Even in the early church, you see a lot of emphasis on this. I always love the reading the letters of St. Ignatius of Antioch, you know, who died as a martyr somewhere between the year 107 and 110. Okay, so he's, he's one of the first bishops of the church. And he wrote these letters on his way to martyrdom in Rome. And his letters are all about unity as really the, you know, something that's an essential quality of the church. And he exhorts the different church communities that he's writing to about how they need to stay united, especially through their unity with the bishop. There's a letter that, one of the letters that Ignatius wrote was to St. Polycarp, who was another bishop. And he, he wrote, Give thought especially to unity, for there is nothing more important than this. And at that time, was there a lot of, I imagine, I mean, they didn't have the communications that we have now, right? So, I mean, I imagine there's a lot of different scriptures that were being studied. They didn't have the Bible like we have, you know? Right. So was there a lot of kind of confusion? And Well, it was very early in the church. So the church's structure was being formed. And, and really at that time, we know from Ignatius's letters that the three grades of holy orders had really developed. And in these local churches, there were, there were, there was one head in each local church, okay. the bishop. Uh -huh. So, but then he talked about the presbyters and the deacons and mm -hmm. how important they are that they be united to the bishop and the faithful to be united to the bishop. So, he wrote beautifully about this, and that's a way to preserve truth, mm -hmm. because already we know there were certain heretical teachings going around, right. you know, docetism and Gnosticism. You know, we see this in the later, in, even in St. John's letters in the New Testament, where he kind of, you know, condemns the, some of these errors. And um, so how do you stay away from heresy? You need to be united mm -hmm. with the apostolic church, the one church. Mm -hmm. And so Ignatius talks about that. So, you know, there's a lot of quotes I could give from, from St. Ignatius of Antioch's letters, but I'll, I'll just say he's really explaining how that to be united to the bishop is to be in unity with the church and, and being united to the church is to be in unity with Jesus. Hmm. And to be united to Jesus is to be in unity with his Father. Mm -hmm. And oneness is founded upon the intimacy of the Holy Spirit. I'll give you a quote from his letter to the Magnesians, which is really beautiful. He says, Do your utmost to stand firm 
in the precepts of the Lord and the apostles, so that everything you do, worldly or spiritually, may go prosperously from beginning to end in faith and love, in the Son and the Father and the Spirit, together with your most reverend bishop, and that beautifully woven spiritual chaplet, your clergy, and godly-minded deacons. Be as submissive to the bishop and to one another as Jesus Christ was to his Father, and as the apostles were to Christ and the Father, so that there may be complete unity in the flesh as well as in the Spirit. That kind of gives you a, a taste of how important this theme was even so early on, mm -hmm. the end of the first century and beginning of the second century. When did the creed come out that had the one? One Holy, Holy Catholic. Catholic and, that was the year 381. Okay. Now, what we have to understand is that this unity doesn't mean there's not diversity in the church. Okay, there is. From the beginning, the one church had a great diversity because obviously there's a variety of gifts. Mm -hmm. And so within the unity of the people of God, we have different languages, different cultures, and among the faithful, there are different gifts, different offices. And even in the Catholic Church today, we have, you know, we talked about this in earlier episodes. We have Eastern Catholic churches and, and the Western Catholic Church. You know, in the East, we have those, you know, we've talked about the Melkite Church and the Byzantine churches and the Ukrainian Catholic Church, etc. But we're all one. Mm. But we have these diverse traditions and I mean, even dioceses, you know, there's some diversity, but we're united in those three essential qualities that I talked about. Mm -hmm. United in the same profession of faith, we're united in the celebration of the sacraments, and we're united through apostolic succession, which happens through the sacrament of holy orders, especially the ordination of bishops. Would it be better if we were united in the way that we practice the faith with these different rites and traditions. I can see some places where diversity is definitely a strength in the way that we celebrate mass with these different rites. Would it be better if we were united in that? Or is that diversity also something that makes us a better as a church? Well, when you talk about, for example, liturgical diversity, I think you don't want to become, for example, there's, there's one Roman rite. Right. Okay, so for the liturgy, the liturgies of the different sacraments. And I think that unity is important. And also unity in the other rites and the other churches. So therefore, when we celebrate the Latin rite, the Roman rite, you know, it's the same rite, same order, etc., all over the world where we have the Latin church mm -hmm. in Africa, Latin America, Europe, different places, and, you know, Asia. And then you have these other churches. Let's use as an example, the Byzantine church mm -hmm. or the Ukrainian church, Catholic church, and they follow the liturgy of St. John Chrysostom. And therefore they're, you know, that's the liturgy they follow. So I don't think there should be tampering with the liturgy of each particular church. Mm -hmm. Because then you have 
I mean, there's legitimate diversity. And for example, you know, I was in Nigeria and it's the same Roman rite, but they have different styles of music. Okay. They have different instruments, for example, in Africa. Mm -hmm. And that's legitimate diversity. Hopefully that answers yeah. your question. Yeah. Why don't we take a break now? And if people have questions, they can text us at the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And we will continue to talk about what it means for the church to be one and, and how that fits in with the diversity of the church and what threatens our unity. Coming up on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. What's the difference between Notre Dame Federal Credit Union and a bank? Well, banks are owned by investors looking to make a profit. Notre Dame FCU is different. We are a not-for-profit, member-owned cooperative. Our mission is to help our members improve their lives with products, services, and education. If we end up with too much money ourselves, we simply give it back to our members. Last year, over a million dollars. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits? Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our bishop, and we've been talking about the first of the four marks of the church, that the church is one, holy, Catholic, and apostolic. Today we're talking about it being one and that unity. Talked about the diversity of the church, Bishop, and, and how that's a, a strength and that we can still be united and have diversity. At what point does that become a negative, the, the diversity, well, and we, we stop being united in that diversity? Well, one very clear example is when there's heresy. Okay. Okay. Which is to the, because then you're, you know, because remember that first mark of our visible unity is the profession of the same faith, mm -hmm. the truth of the faith. So when you have false teachings and you have groups who really separate themselves from the church because they're denying doctrines of the church, mm -hmm. then they are really placing themselves outside of full communion with the church. Mm -hmm. There's also schism, okay? So we have these wounds to our unity. By schism, the church means it's not really denying truths of doctrine, doctrinal truths of the church. Well, kind of, because you're, you know, denying, for example, that third thing, the apostolic succession, the union with the Pope and the bishops. Right. So schismatic churches may keep the various dogmas but they've separated themselves from the hierarchical structure of the mm -hmm. church. Sometimes they'll ordain their own bishops and all that. So schism and heresy do great harm. Now, we see that from the beginning, there have been groups, you know, like I mentioned earlier, you know, St. John the Apostle and St. Ignatius of Antioch and St. Polycarp had to deal with some heretics, you know, and you can see that and they're, saying this is this is damaging mm -hmm. to the body of Christ. You know, the Vatican, Second Vatican Council uh, talked about this in the decree on ecumenism. And I think it's worth quoting a paragraph. Second Vatican Council said, in this one and only church of God, from its very beginnings, there arose certain rifts, which the apostle strongly censures as damnable. Mm -hmm. By the apostle, he means Paul. But in subsequent centuries, much more serious dissensions appeared, 
and large communities became separated from full communion with the Catholic Church, for which, often enough, men of both sides were to blame. And the Catechism says, the ruptures that wound the unity of Christ's body, here we must distinguish heresy, apostasy, and schism, do not occur without human sin. Now, the council, so of course we had this break in the 11th century with the Eastern Orthodox when they rejected the authority of the Pope of Rome. Mm -hmm. That was the first we could call major break. Yeah, there were smaller schisms in the first millennium, but nothing as major as that. Did any of those last... Well, yeah, till today, I mean, oh, which ones? Uh, the, the ones prior to I mean, you see it resurfacing, like different Gnostic currents and things like that. Yeah, but they're not major. Okay. But then in the West, in the 16th century, we had Martin Luther and John Calvin and others, the Protestants, breaking mm -hmm. from, you know, communion with the Pope and with the church. And a matter of fact, rejecting certain sacraments and mm -hmm. all of that. So heresies, schism. So we have all these Christian denominations now. Right. Now, the thing is, how do we relate to, as Catholics, to those who are Christians but really are Protestants or, mm -hmm. or Orthodox? Do we see them as our brothers and sisters in Christ? Yes, because their break didn't mean that they lost everything. No, you know, they still have the sac a valid sacrament of baptism, for example, as long as they do it correctly. Mm -hmm. And the Second Vatican Council wrote this in, um, or taught this in the Decree on Ecumenism. One cannot charge with the sin of, of the separation those who at present are born into these communities that resulted from such separation and in them are brought up in the faith of Christ. And the Catholic Church accepts them with respect and affection as brothers. All who have been justified by faith and baptism are incorporated into Christ. Therefore, they have a right to be called Christians, and with good reason are accepted as brothers and sisters in the Lord by the children of the Catholic Church. Furthermore, many elements of sanctification and of truth are found outside the visible confines of the Catholic Church, the written word of God, the life of grace, faith, hope, and charity, with the other interior gifts of the Holy Spirit, as well as visible elements. Christ's Spirit uses these churches and ecclesial communities as means of salvation, whose power derives from the fullness of grace and truth that Christ has entrusted to the Catholic Church. All these blessings come from Christ and lead to him and are in themselves calls to Catholic unity. So the unity, we believe, of the church subsists in the Catholic church. And it's something we can, it can never lose. You know, Christ gives his church this, this gift of unity. But the church must always pray and work to maintain and to perfect the unity that Christ wills for us. That's why we have the ecumenical movement, ecumenism, mm -hmm. so that all may be one as Jesus prayed at the Last Supper. So we're called to work for unity and for the restoration of full communion. 
because those who aren't in full communion with the Catholic Church don't have all the means of salvation that Christ entrusted to his church. Mm -hmm. And they don't have the fullness of truth, which is also guaranteed by unity with the Catholic Church and the Pope and the College of Bishops. So we need to be tireless in our quest for Christian unity. So we can speak of for example, Protestants as not being in full communion with Christ's church, mm-hmm. but partial communion, mm-hmm. imperfect communion. But it's not like they're totally outside because they do have, as I said, elements of the truth. They have the scriptures, they have baptism, etc. So we can call them our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's not helpful for the cause to see, to just call them heretics. You know, that doesn't further the cause yeah. of of Christian unity. So hopefully that's helpful. Yeah. What do you see, if anything, as threats to unity within the church today, mm. either locally or or internationally? Or well, I think in the very recent years, we see, for example what's going on in Germany as, as really dangerous to our unity. Mm-hmm. The synodal path, which also Pope Francis has criticized in Germany, where a group of bishops, priests, and laity together kind of proposing things that are really against our faith. Mm-hmm. So we have this national group, Germany, it could lead to a schism. Yeah. You know, they've, we've worried about that. They've gone pretty far. And that's not, you know, that's not authentic Catholicism. Right. Synods, like on a national level, can be helpful, but it, it needs to be within the bounds of orthodoxy, within the bounds of, of the church's teachings and the church's discipline. So that's, I think, a pretty relevant and current issue. And we've talked about synods in the past, but can you briefly explain what a synod is and how it could be positive versus negative? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, in Germany, it's technically not a synod. They call it a synodal path, so it's kind of similar to a synod. But an actual synod, it would be something that either the bishop calls for his diocese or the pope calls for all the bishops of the world. Mm -hmm. And, you know, with this upcoming synod in October, the Synod of Bishops, Pope Francis wanted input from around the world. So he asked each diocese in the world to participate. And we did here and dioceses all over the world participated, certain questions to discuss on the local level. And then we presented the results of the synodal discussions to the bishop, the Episcopal Conference. And then they send, you know, this input from the United States over to Rome. So that's kind of the synodal model where there's, you know, common reflection, for example, on issues that are going on and how we can evangelize and proclaim the gospel more effectively in this world. Kind of like a survey or a chance for feedback or... Yeah, and, um, and really trying to listen to the Holy Spirit. It shouldn't be seen as a political thing okay. or something overly bureaucratic. And I think that's what happened in Germany, actually. But no, a common listening to the Holy Spirit in the whole process of discernment. But in the end, it's the bishops, the successors of the apostles, who are the chief teachers 
endowed by the Holy Spirit with this charism of truth, and together with the head of the Episcopal College, the Pope, the successor of St. Peter, and this has been the hierarchical structure of the Church from the beginning, and this guarantees our fidelity to the teaching of the apostles. Do you see any threats to unity or potential threats in the United States? Well, there are extremists where they come very dangerously close to separation. Mm -hmm. For example, there are those who dissent from essential doctrines of the church, and they can be very vocal about it. Mm -hmm. And that's hurtful to the church's unity. And sometimes they may need to be disciplined for that. Mm -hmm. They include like pro-choice Catholics. Exactly, and, yeah. 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 Yeah, it could be those who are descending from authoritative church teaching, and then they try to propagate their errors mm -hmm. publicly. Right. What can we or should we be doing to improve unity? Is there anything like your average parishioner sitting in the pews can do to, to help make our church more one? Yeah, I think one of the things would be always to pray for unity. Mm -hmm. I think prayer is first. And, and we say that, for example, in the ecumenical movement. Uh, we have even in the Missal, you know, we have a special mass for Christian unity. Mm -hmm. I think even in our own parishes, you know, there can be divisions. Sure. So I think we, you know, the faithful have, can help to, you know, bring people together. You know, because also charity is part of this. I mean, love is part of this. And I think, you know, we should look at that invisible part of unity as well. The importance of, of love for one another. And because when I see fractured parishes, for example, it's sometimes because of not necessarily doctrinal disagreements, but more kind of human faults by which people can separate into different camps. So really on every level of the church, parish, diocese, and universally, you know, charity is always, and, and love for one another, that includes fraternal knowledge of one another is really important. Because remember in his letter to the Colossians, St. Paul wrote about how charity binds everything together in perfect harmony. Hmm. And, and he also, in his letter to the Ephesians, exhorted the Ephesians, the Christians there, to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You know, what threatens the gift of unity is sin. You know, that's basically, you know. Yeah. So I think it's good to think of that invisible part as well as the visible part. Very good. Well, thank you for breaking this down for us. Encourage people to tune in next week. We'll have... Part two, talking about the church being holy, and then we'll continue. Part three will be being one holy Catholic, and then the next one being apostolic. So I think this will be a great series for us to reflect on. Can we get your Episcopal blessing before we go? Sure. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Bishop. You're welcome, Kyle. Truth and Charity with Bishop Rose is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union.
This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit spokestreet.com.